This is Live Well Talk on COVID-19. I'm Dr. Dustin Arnold, Chief Medical Officer at UnityPoint Health St. Luke's Hospital. Today's podcast, I'll cover the latest on COVID-19, which will include the FDA's decision uh, made several days ago regarding vaccines for children ages 5 to 11. Also, I'll touch on other topics that we commonly uh, discuss. And then we'll have another edition of the mailbag where I answer questions from you, our listeners. What we're seeing in the hospital, we continue to see this persistent plateau of, of COVID patients. Again, it uh, um, is consistent that the unvaccinated, about 75% vaccinated, 25%, then that has been fairly persistent. But there's two things I wanted to bring up today to be uh, encouraged about. And that first is that the rate of transmission for Lynn County is down to 0.73, that less than one. That means cases are decreasing. And additionally, uh, the number of active cases are going down as well. So you have the susceptible bucket, active case bucket, recovered bucket. And so we're having less people, uh, we're having more people exit the active and go into recovered than are entering that bucket from susceptible. So that that is that is a good sign from that standpoint. Flu vaccine clinics are up and running. Uh, you can get those at, uh, at at your physician's office, but also the pharmacies, and I know Hy-Vee has it. Uh, but the big news this week was the FDA's approval uh, to authorize or amend the emergency use authorization of the Pfizer vaccine for children ages 5 to 11. Now, I'm going to walk through this process. So the FDA has their advisory committee, and that committee made a recommendation to amend the emergency use authorization for Pfizer to go down to five and 11, children's five to 11 years of age. Then the FDA said, yeah, we agree with that. And the FDA endorsed it. The next step is the ACIP will meet, uh, which is the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. And that's really kind of, that's the, the, uh, the one that probably has the most weight with clinicians, their recommendations. Uh, and the AICP will recommend to the CDC uh, next week, whether or not they agree with that, and then uh, that will be uh, the amendment to the emergency use authorization. Now, sometimes it's confusing because you hear approve and approve and approve. Uh, the FDA can doesn't they're not obligated to accept what the advisory committee says. Neither is the CDC, but that is the steps that do that. So we'll have to see on that. Now, I think vaccinating children. I I, I think I've discussed that with a pediatrician. Um, Kids can be hospitalized, thankfully, not very often with uh, COVID-19, uh, but they're also susceptible to, uh, um, if they get it, they're probably going to do fine, but they, there has been case reports of the, the long haul syndrome or this long COVID uh, going out six months. Um, that's been well reported in the medical literature. So there might be an advantage to uh, giving the vaccine to the children in, just from that standpoint. And also, yeah, children will not um, get extremely ill from it. Also, they we coming to believe that vaccinated spreads it just as much as unvaccinated, uh, that that's it really doesn't prevent transmission. Uh, but if they're vaccinated and they get exposed, they won't have to quarantine. And so that's that's an advantage there just logistically. Uh, and I think that uh, should warrant a strong consideration uh, based upon that logistic. I did want to follow up on one question or one comment I made last time. Um, if you get the risk of the messenger RNA myocarditis is greater after the second dose than the first dose with the messenger RNA, which would be Pfizer Moderna. And they believe it's the same uh, rate of risk 
with the third dose. Um, I, if if you develop myocarditis from the second dose, I don't think you should get the, the booster. But if you didn't, you have the same risk you had with the second dose in doing that. So it's not a cumulative uh, risk process. Uh, speaking of uh, the Moderna uh, vaccine, they also proved this week that it could match Pfizer in providing a booster shot uh, for those over the age of 65, ages 18 to 64 in uh, with medical conditions and ages 18 to 64 at high risk for exposure uh, because of occupational or institutional setting. Um, they approved that for Moderna, but Moderna is at a half dose and that's they're both recommended to be six months after the the second shot of Pfizer or Moderna. Johnson and Johnson, they also approved uh, a booster or a second shot, and that's uh, anyone over the age of 18, uh, and it is recommended to be at least two months from the first J&J shot. I would, I would almost describe the J&J as not a booster, but as a uh, second shot, um, just based upon uh, the literature that I've been reading. Also this week, uh, noted that the FDA Advisory Committee is going to review the data on the Merck oral antiviral, which will really add uh, a lot to our armamentarium to, to treat this early and prevent um, hospitalizations. That's the end of the COVID update, but stick around and we'll be right back with the mailbag. Welcome back to the mailbag. Uh, the mailbag is a new segment uh, on the podcast where I'll periodically answer questions submitted by our uh, listeners on uh, medical-related topics uh, in addition to COVID-19 topics. Our first question comes from Jacinta. Uh, what are some therapeutics that could be prescribed early in the symptoms of COVID-19 to prevent hospitalization? Well, that, that's that's a great question, um, the, and that's been a huge debate. The most the most used one, the, the one that we have available to us is the monoclonal antibody infusion uh, to be given within 10 days of the start of symptoms to prevent hospitalization. Uh, and that is appears to be very effective. Um, once the Merck oral antiviral uh, comes out or is receives authorization, that'll be another opportunity. Now, there's been listing in the literature of ivermectin, azithromycin, uh, uh, fluvoxine, which is an antidepressant, uh, vitamin D. And if you really look at the literature, it, it is there's a lot of noise. There, there is uh, uh, meta-analysis completed that's inconsistent with it being uh, effective. Uh, CDC and FDA have recommended against using ivermectin. Um, I, and, you know, if, if a physician and a patient wanted to try that, I wouldn't recommend it. But uh, I would stick with the dose that's normal for ivermectin uh, and not dose it to exceed uh, its recommended dosing for sure. Um, hydroxychloroquine was also mentioned uh, early on in the pandemic. Uh, and those are things that really don't have the evidence to support their uh, standardized use for all patients. So at this time, we're really limited to uh, the monoclonal antibody that is effective uh, and also can be delivered subcutaneously. Uh, so you don't have to sit through an IV infusion uh, and uh, the antiviral that will hopefully come out in the, late in November. The second question is from Tina. Why does medical guidance, mass guidance, or cancer screening guidance change so often? And what do you think is the best source to keep uh, up with these changes? Well, the 
they change because you know science is not ever settled science is the pursuit of the truth and you continue to keep uh, trying to uh, to to discover that and so they do look at guidance for colon cancer screening that was recently adjusted uh, and over time it will probably be adjusted again um, the mass guidance uh, the difficult thing with the mass guidance is that there's no there's no solid evidence, meaning a randomized, controlled, double-blinded, uh, placebo-controlled trial of wearing a mask or not wearing a mask, and then the outcomes. Uh, there's observational evidence that that it that it may help. Uh, you can find observational evidence that says it doesn't help, uh, but it doesn't hurt. Uh, and it may work quite well for uh, droplet uh, uh, or source control. I, I do think that uh, uh, the best place to look for guidance is the Center for Disease Control. They've been consistent with that. Um, that it's interesting that this question is asked because as a medical staff, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, we had uh, we were mixing World Health Organization with CDC uh, and very confusing and so because the cdc would be inconsistent on one compared to the world health organization uh, and so as a medical staff we follow the cdc guidelines uh, and then uh, take it from there next question from sarah which actually came up last week what's your opinion on mixing brands for your covid 19 booster it's an unpeer-reviewed study but it does uh, state that you can uh, mix and match if you will um, Personally, I received a booster being in, in healthcare uh, with Moderna, and my first shots were Pfizer, um, and that was because that's what was available. The additive benefit appears to be quite significant if you receive the J&J &J and then you follow that up with a Moderna booster, uh, pretty significant, uh, where they've measured uh, the antibody response, the immune response to be uh, 76 times greater than what would be expected, which I don't know how accurate that number is, but it's certainly uh, of interest and it is safe to do that and I think it will help uh, overall people to receive the vaccine because they won't have to try to logistically figure out uh, whether it's Pfizer or Moderna etc. I, I would continue to avoid the J&J &J vaccine uh, if you have a history of blood clotting disorder that I would do and if you have uh, if you're a young male ages 15 to 24 I think was what it is listed uh, you, you have a little increased risk of myocarditis, pericarditis with the Moderna and Pfizer. So those are two things that would probably help steer uh, my decision uh, in, in taking that. And that's all for the mailbag today. If you'd like to submit a question in the mailbag, go to unitypoint.org backslash mailbag. I'll answer questions about COVID-19, the latest technologies and procedures, uh, services provided at UnityPoint Health Cedar Rapids and other medical topics that may present. Please note, however, the mailbag is not an alternative to a medical appointment. Any questions about personal symptoms or conditions need to be directed to your primary care physician or an urgent care if that's the case. In case of emergency, always present to the nearest emergency room or dial 911. Once again, you can submit your question to me at unipoint.org backslash mailbag. That's unipoint.org backslash mailbag, M-A-I-L-B-A-G. I look forward to hearing from you, our amazing listeners. Thank you for listening to this COVID-19 update for the latest COVID-19 vaccine information and more. Visit unipoint.org. Thank you for listening to Live Well Talk On. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your family, friends, neighbors, strangers about our podcast. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, be well.